The KCLR Daily with Brian Redmond on air, online and on smart speaker. You're very welcome back to the KCLR Daily. Um, the free phone number, I suppose, is where I'll start. 1800 90 96 96. You can also text and WhatsApp us on 083 um, 9696. Uh, big story. Um, if anybody wants to comment, that comment line is open to you um, as and well you need. And um, we'll give out some helplines as well if anybody's being affected by some of the issues that we're going to discuss now. Because I've been joined in studio um, by somebody I know, somebody many of you know, um, Casey Laura's very own Angela Doyle-Stewart, who is remembering her sister Lisa, um, who was murdered 15 years ago and indeed is the focus of the TG4 programme, Marrow in Our Mask, which is on uh, this evening. Um, 24-year-old Lisa Doyle was strangled to death by her fiancé Gerard O'Hara in Lachlan Bridge on the 20th of September 2009. They're the facts as they stand um, but Angela has joined me now. Angela, thank you very much for coming in um, to talk about Lisa. Um, 15 years. Let's start, I suppose, by asking why this programme now? Um, When they approached me about doing the documentary over the years I've been asked by various production companies and I decided at the time I didn't feel it was necessary. Um, this time, initially, I said no. Um, well, I actually said, let me think about it, because anything I do, there has to be the right intention behind it. I don't just do things for the sake of it. There has to be a reason why I'm doing it. And who does it help? Who benefits from this by me doing this? And that's why I am. That's how I approach things. Um, so when they contacted me initially, I said, you know, I'm not sure. So I contacted my older sister, who's very private. She works in the therapeutic field for over 20 years. And I said, you know, I kind of half expect her to say, no, I don't think you should do it. I think half of me was expecting that and maybe secretly hoping in one way because yeah. it can be exhausting. And she said, you know what, Angela, I think you should do this because um, everything you have done over the years for Lisa and everything you've done in SAVE and just how you approach things, you do help people. It does make a difference and it also keeps Lisa's memory out there um, and it's important. So we did it on th- under that, but also under the fact that Midas Productions, who were part of it, are very sensitive at how they approach things. Also, I got to see it before it would air and that was also important to me, um, especially, um, you know, the sensitivity of it. And they gave me that preview and that was part of the, and you know they're they're a great team and they handled it very well um, and I felt very safe in their yeah. hands so it that's why I did it but also he is putting his third bid for parole as well I always said the closer he gets to getting out the louder I will become and in the most respectful way in my memory in the memory of my sister but in a way that I will make myself more uh, make people more aware well, we'll talk more about Save Ireland and the great work that they're doing, you and the team are mm-hmm. doing in relation to that. But you said he, he is Gerard O'Hara. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he's the man whose hand uh, was responsible for taking the life of, of, of your sister. Uh, take us back to the 20th of September 2009. Now, I know um, you practically never talked about, talk about the events of no. that evening. And I hope you don't mind me asking, why do you... Yeah. not talk about those events. Yeah, I mean, in interviews and even when I wrote my memoir, I didn't. I didn't write about it. Um, when I found out that Lisa had been, Lisa was dead that morning, um, my brother, my father and my sister's partner, Martin, arrived at the house. 
to tell me, you know, my father's dead now and Martin's dead now. You know, I look back and think so many people have gone. But um, that morning, um, 14 years ago, when he arrived at the house, I knew something was wrong um, because Catherine had called me my sister. And I was wondering, they had been out the night before and I was going, why is she calling me so early in the morning? I was meant to go. I was actually meant to stay in that house. And people don't know that. I was meant to go and sleep there that night. Something actually I don't think I've ever spoken about. Um, and I didn't go because I didn't feel well. And it was very last minute I started to feel a bit unwell. And I rang Lisa and I said, I'm so sorry. Actually, I, I don't know if I rang her a text or I said, I'm so sorry, I'm not going to be able to go and go out with you tonight because she's only after moving into Lachlan Bridge and, you know, she really wanted us to go. I said, I'm not feeling well all of a sudden. I don't know why. I'm actually going to have an early night and go to bed. And I texted her, told her I loved her. I said, have a great night. I'll catch up with you soon. Because I had been with them the, the week before and she showed me the spare bedroom. She said, you know, that's where you can stay when you come up. You know, I often wonder, had I stayed, would I be here today or would anything or would have happened then or maybe one way or the other was going to happen um but that morning uh, my sister called me and she was asking where I was she said where are you now and I was like why do you want to know where I am and she said Angela um are you at home and I said I am she said are you dressed and I said no and she said maybe get dressed and I said okay I'll get dressed and then she said look I have to go she didn't want to tell me over the phone because I found out uh, seven years before my mother died from sudden death and that night I was living in Dublin Lisa was living with me um, I found out my mother had died I got the news over the phone you know I, I think and I never blame anyone for that I think what happens in those situations people don't know how to handle things mm. you don't know how to even approach it and even as I told Lisa that Mammy had died I don't even know if I approached it properly so but that morning when I found out or when I when they arrived to tell me I um I initially thought an accident or something. I didn't go to that place. I, I, I think I was shocked when my my Martin said, and they think he did it. And I was, I couldn't understand that. I couldn't wrap my head around it. But the reason I don't talk about that night was the week before the court case, we were brought into Carlo Garda Station, where we were told the details of that night. Um, and I came out of there after being told I actually couldn't speak. I had lost that ability for about three hours and that's why I, I think I would have been better off not known. Um, I think in my own way for that year I had somehow protected myself from the horror of that night and actually in the reality I will never fully speak about it. I have spoken about it in counselling so I've addressed it yeah. but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't actually put other people through it because what's out there in the media and what's in this documentary tonight isn't even the full isn't even half of what happened yeah so, so it, it's a bit of a protection mechanism for others but also, also for, others, for yourself yeah. but if I, I I lost my ability to speak when people say that they were shocked and traumatised and they couldn't speak I never understood it and the strange thing is when I found out Lisa was dead I could still speak but when I found out what actually happened I couldn't unsee it I couldn't unhear it so um, in my brain shut down and I think back to getting into, even as I left that Garda station, getting into my car, which I now realise was unbelievable that I, I don't remember the drive. I shouldn't have even been driving, but I didn't know this at the time. Mm. I, was, I, I remember getting into the car, but I don't remember the drive. And when I got out of the car, it took me hours to actually speak about what had happened. I couldn't understand what people meant when they are so shocked and traumatised that they can't get the words out. I couldn't. So that's why I don't talk about it to other people in interviews because it would be too horrific to go there. But also I talk about it with the people that actually can really help me, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, like no, my therapist. Yeah. And they're the ones 
that should be listening to me or helping me. And that's why I don't talk about it publicly. Lisa and uh, her murderer um, had been together for a while. Uh, I understand they'd planned potentially to marry. Yeah, they were going to get married the following year, um, June. Um, And it was all booked and planned. Um, They were going to have... you know, a registry wedding in the hotel in Carlo, um, and everything was going to be there. She was very excited. She was looking forward to it. I understand even that night when they were out, they were discussing it with other people and about their wedding plans. Um, she was very much looking forward to it. She couldn't wait to get married. She was with me the week before, and she spoke about it, how excited she was. And, yeah, it was. I was delighted for her because I really thought that's what she wanted. And, um, yeah. And after, after taking her life... Uh, Jared O'Hara, uh, according to what's been reported in the courts, his own evidence, I suppose, um, he dressed Lisa. He laid her under a duvet. Um, he then left the the house, went and stopped at a petrol station, got himself a drink and some cigarettes and wrote a note and then went to the local guard station. Yeah. He wrote a note and he said in the note that... Um, he always had he had these urges and um, he just wanted to kill wanted to know what it would be like to kill somebody Um, anybody by all accounts it wasn't but Lisa would have been the easiest target right Um, you know the easiest he had access to her she trusted him and loved him never would have suspected anything so for him it was yeah he had no regard for Lisa it turns out as you found out, as the police found out um, during the course of their investigations, it wasn't the first time that he had uh, attempted this. No. Um, a few years before, um, he met a girl on a night out and she invited him back to her place. And uh, during that evening or night, um, he attempted to um, strangle her. Um, and she fought him off. She told a friend at the time and... You know, it wasn't reported to the Gardaí at that time. So he um, he wasn't known to the Gardaí. He had no previous convictions. No one knew about it, um, you know. And in that moment, I suppose, when I found out, obviously I was shocked. Um, I was shocked because of how he got away with things. I think that's what got me, was that here he was in a small village and he had already done something very dark. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't known. And obviously I had empathy for this other person and the trauma that that person had gone mm. through. And... I was, um, when she gave a statement, I really think that did help um, the situation because it really highlighted there's this person who was able to conceal this part of themselves to everyone, um, but at the same time couldn't deny that there was intent there then. And I think that's what was important. There was one part in the note that really struck me. I'd love to get your thoughts on on, on how it makes you feel uh, Gerard O'Hara wrote that, that when he drank alcohol, he had uh, terrible thoughts, um, adding he loved his fiance with all his heart and that she deserved better. How, how does it make you feel to hear the man that uh, took your sister's life claim that he loved her? Yeah, um, when you love somebody, you don't harm them. You don't hurt them. You would do anything for that person. Love doesn't 
Love doesn't hurt other people. It certainly doesn't kill. Um, so no, that's superficial. It's very easy to write something, right? Actions, my mother always said, speak louder than words. So no, that's um, that's him somehow trying to make an excuse for his own behaviour. I don't know, but that means absolutely nothing to me or my family. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just pathetic, really, you know, on him, on his part. Um, your victim impact statement talked about Lisa, obviously, at, at his sentencing. Um, mm. You talked about her being an athlete. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you've smiled broadly uh. yeah Lisa was incredible she was very funny um, very sporty I mean she would have been very involved in the athletic club the swimming club the rounders team um, she was brilliant um, whatever she, she loved sports um, she loved being part of a team she loved connecting with other people she loved poetry she lo- she was very creative I do think if Lisa was here now she would probably go into interior design or fashion design because she was able to turn anything drab and dreary into something beautiful and creative and bright with light you know um, she was very um yeah, she was just very artistic, very creative, and I, I would have, I would have imagined she would have ended up in that field down the road. Yeah. But she loved her job um, in Argus, she and she loved, Argus. yeah, she loved it. And she, she loved was the people. The breadwinner within the household wasn't yeah, she? I mean, he had lost his job. Um, I think it was like during that time when a lot of people he worked in the buildings or something. I actually fully don't know what he was doing but um, when he lost it Lisa was yeah she would kind of look after everything and um, and she didn't mind that you know she was quite happy to do um, do her part and she loved it she loved working she loved being around her colleagues and she was yeah she was good at it mm. she, she was uh, would you stay with me for two minutes yeah. um, because I'd love to talk uh, more about the work that you're doing mm-hmm. with, with Save Ireland and, yeah. and the group and talk about parole in general I mean it's a story we've covered with Kathleen mm-hmm. Chad in the past yeah. um, um, Andrew Thaw Stewart uh, joining us here on the KCLR Daily we'll be back with you in just a moment The KCLR Daily with Brian Redmond on air online and on smart speaker with thanks to the Fairgreen Shopping Centre gift card the perfect gift for all occasions see fairgreen.ie You're very welcome back uh, Andrew Thaw Stewart normally I say of the KCLR newsroom uh, joins me in studio today she is firmly the sister of uh, Lisa Doyle uh, the victim of a murder some 15 years ago yeah. um, uh, the hands of her then fiance um, Angela we have a lovely text in Angela um, it says Angela makes the world a better place and like her family does so much to help people um, anywhere that's lovely that's I'm sure it won't sweet. be the last one in um, so Jared was sentenced um, sentenced to life yeah, so life sentence in Ireland, it's in around 23 years, maybe, in around that. Um, but they're on licence for life. So um, there can be a little bit of confusion around that. And that's something that, um, you know, myself and the guys in SAVE, we've highlighted over the years. It's really important that um, they're not, sometimes uh, you will hear something or it'll be said locked up for life or in jail for life or they're not, you know, they will be on licence when they come out. But mm. they will serve possibly anything from 12 to 23 years for murder um so yeah how many times has jared applied for parole uh this will be his third bid this year so yeah so it started at seven years for us um and is there any sort of guidance or legislation around that or is it completely up to the 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 convicted criminal in this case to decide when they want to make the first application. So they can apply from seven years, absolutely. So they decide. 
Um, so when they, they put in for the first bid, but um, the work we've done in SAVE, which is Sentencing and Victim Equality, um, along with Advic and a number of other organisations, have put our voices forward. And over the last number of years, we changed that. We changed it from seven years to 12 years. Now, it didn't impact our situation because we couldn't. Um, we so knew this was only for new cases? New cases. Yeah. We knew that um, people were going to experience what we experienced and we didn't want that. And that's why we set it up in the first place so that we could pave the way and make it a little bit easier for the next people, unfortunately, that would come after us. And um, we played a big role in that. And thankfully, we changed um, to 12 years. And that does give breathing room for families. Yeah. You know, it gives them that chance to actually kind of get to grips because I was writing victim impact statements from seven years, then having to sit there in that process and relive it over and over every time. And, you know, my parents are dead. I'm kind of for my own siblings now. I'm the one that puts the statements forward. The other siblings have now, which is brilliant. Um, but it has been on my shoulders um, to do that. And, you know, I, I took that on for my family. Um, but he reads them, so he gets to read them and he gets to basically OK them. Because if there's anything in that victim impacts or so, the parole letter uh, I put forward, any inaccuracies or anything, um, and he doesn't like it, he can contest it. So what's changed and what SAFE have been instrumental in as well along with other organisations. I can't just say it's all us. It's mm. not. There's a number of brilliant organisations part of this. It now means I can sit in front of the parole board, which I will this year, and meet the board, whereas before we were not allowed to do that. It was just him, say, or the perpetrator. Now the families have the opportunity, should they wish to, sit in front of the people that make the decision to release um, the killer of our loved one. It sounds like a positive move. It is a positive move. I'm just concerned about you and, yeah. and other people of, of, of other murder victims who will then not just have to relive the story and, and take time in the privacy of their own home or their own bedroom to write that statement and send it away, yeah. but have to actually go and utter those words. No, you don't have to. It's a choice. Right. And I know that a few of my um, colleagues, I suppose I will call them in SAVE, have already gone through the process and they found it um, very sensitive, well handled, and they couldn't fault it in that regard. Yeah. They they felt they were very... Um, so there's there's um, victim per, uh, person, uh, victim representative on the board, which is really good because that wouldn't have been there before. Yeah. So we have that now. And that does make a difference. It's not cold and dispassionate. It is very centred to how we are feeling and I think that's really important but you have a choice you don't have to sit there but I do think with that opportunity I will sit there um, in front of the board because I want them to see me and I want them to see, look at me and I want them to look at my sister's picture I want them to see all that because they should because this is not just a number this is not just another person this is the, you know, someone I loved, someone I still love, someone that means the world to me. And I want them to know that. And I want them to know what this has done to my family um, and the impact it has had on us. You know, I will probably be in therapy for the rest of my life. You know, I think people sometimes forget that I've been through this because I am quite level headed. I have managed to um, mind myself and contain, you know, that part of myself over the years and look after myself. But that has been very expensive, too. It's been with years of therapy, you know, and I will be like that for the rest of my life. But I know how to manage myself. I know how to mind myself. But not everyone has that. Not yeah. everyone knows those things. So. You've done a fantastic job. And, and, and it, uh, what I mean by that is, I think the first time I met you was probably three and a half or four years ago. Mm. I didn't know your story. I know. So probably people. about 18 months ago. Yeah, you know, and and certainly didn't know in this level of detail until we were preparing um, to have the chat this morning. Yeah. Um, if it's if it's of any solace to you as an individual at all, 
yeah. You've no, done a, such a fantastic job to get on with your life. Yeah, thank you. And I think it's it's kind of been, it hasn't been easy. And I think it's been a case of kind of having to, you know, I had my first child oh, almost 13 years ago. And when he came on board, like before that, I actually felt nothing. And I remember thinking, you know, and that's part of grief, but I actually felt very little, but I was functioning as a normal person, whatever a normal person is in society. <laughs> but in reality, I just felt very little. Um, I felt very numb um, and very alone, even though I had the most amazing partner, Stephen, you know, my husband's seven years younger than me. When I think back to what, like that age, he was younger than Lisa when we when he found out about Lisa and how he supported and held my hand through. And I always think you know, with every, you know, love is the greatest healer and it is the greatest thing that will ever happen to us. If somebody is if you love somebody and they love you so much. And when Lisa was killed, I was with Stephen three years, but the love I had for him and the love he had for me as a person and what we were to each other and how we supported each other actually sustained me and managed to keep me not here because I was never leaving, but kept me feeling more than I could, you know, more than I could feel. And I think then when my first child was born, the love I felt, you know, they say there's an emptiness and that will never be filled but someone else or something else will come in and will help ease that. Yeah. And that's what happens. Yeah. Um, there's two last points I'd like to touch on. Um, one is the fact that uh, through this process of investigation, um, it appears that there were certainly large elements of coercive control in the relationship and stuff like that as well. Um, and I, I'm just conscious of the fact that there may be people listening this morning who may be experiencing mm. similar sorts of things. Yeah. And without wanting to be too stark about it, in the case of Lisa, it led to her death. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know if it fully led to her death, if that makes sense. What mm-hmm. I mean is, would when I look back now and I see certain elements, I do think in the last few months there was definitely elements of course of control that are there. But I think in the first few years, when I look back, there's no signs of that. But I think in the last few months, stuff started to become more apparent like I wasn't getting to see Lisa as much as I would like to when I'd call her up she was unavailable or busy or he wanted to be like if I say can we go off on a girl's day and she go well he'll want to go and I said why would he want to go I can't understand that because my husband partner wouldn't want to go on a girl's day <laughs> so I couldn't understand that I was like god you know I, these were the things and when we'd have a family event I know it was less Lisa was there a lot less and I was going where is she and it, it seemed like he was putting hurdles in the way of her getting there because Lisa didn't drive even though she brought him the car he he was like dictating the lifts so I had to intervene and get my brother to go get her for a family event no you go get her and pick her up because then he can't say anything and I was saying this but other people were thinking oh you know the family were saying I don't know I think you know he's watching the soccer match or whatever you'll see that tonight but I think yeah I think um course of control is very hard to see usually the victim is the last to know they're being in a uh, course of controlling situation and the family too and I think we do have to be very careful around the wording of it because we have to be very um, open about what the signs are but also you know be careful that there isn't um, a family left with that feeling oh god was it our fault did yeah. we not see it yeah. and in these cases it's very difficult to see those um, signs in Lisa's case you wouldn't have pieced anything together really think about it. we're all living in different counties you know um, we're working we're you're all going about fam- your own we're all going about lives. our own lives so yeah. how do you piece together the only thing I would say that might be a sign now when I look back but it's all hindsight right when you look back and then you go well I wasn't getting to see her a whole lot he was putting obstacles in the way but I actually thought 
it was me. I thought I, I you see, that's the thing as well. We personalize things. Yeah. I felt terrible guilt because I thought it was my fault that yeah. she didn't want to see me. So I think it's just looking at those things. Well, if there is anybody listening this morning who's got any doubt about their own relationship, um, I suppose if, if you've got doubt about it, then it's definitely something that you need to probably think about a little bit more. Um, there's all sorts of emergency helpline numbers, for example, on the KCLR website, kclr96fm.com. Uh, there's groups out there like uh, Save Ireland. We'll talk about Save Ireland. We've been talking about the fact that they've done so much work as well. Um, do reach out to them. Um, finally, Angela, the documentary's airing this evening on, on, on TG4, TG mm-hmm. Car, whichever TG way you prefer yeah. to say it. Uh, what time? <laughs> It's on at 9.30pm, yeah. I know you've seen it before, will you... No, I won't watch it again. Okay. No. No, and that's just, I have to preserve, you know, parts of myself as well, and that's what I do, and that's how I manage myself. You know, I do the interviews, but I had to sit through to be okay with it, but at the same time, I wouldn't sit through it again. It's just for me, this is called self-preservation, you know, and that's what you need to do in these situations, and mind yourself. You're doing a great job of it. Thanks, Brian. no doubt about that. Just finally, another text in. Angela is uh, great for keeping Lisa's memory alive and a brilliant advocate for justice and the protection of women. And um, that's from Ed in Bagnell's Town. You may oh, know Ed, um, um, but uh, Ed, thank you very much for that text. And more importantly, Angela Doyle Stewart. Thank you. Um, thank you for joining us. Um, remember, Lisa. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. The KCL or Daily with Brian Redmond on air, online, and on smart speaker. With thanks to the Fairgreen Shopping Centre gift card, the perfect gift for all occasions. See fairgreen.ie.